it's very difficult, you know, when you're listening to the daily briefings and stuff, thinking like, well, is this truth? Mm. Or is this something that they have inputted to? Or is this something that the government have put out without listening to doctors? It's really, really hard to figure it out, isn't it? So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Dr. Julia Patterson, who is a doctor who set up Every Doctor, which is here to campaign for the rights and protections of doctors in the NHS. And I believe was set up at, during the junior doctors uh, contract dispute in 2015. So uh, Julia, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's not, we're not actually that old as an organisation, but we, a few of us came together at that time to start doing other grassroots projects. It, every doctor, I suppose, has spawned from that eventually. Okay, well, so uh, before we get into things uh, properly, I have to plug two things quickly. First of all, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is available to order now on Amazon, uh, bookshop.org, and on Waterstones, and hopefully soon you'll be able to even go into store and order a copy. And also, I have to plug uh, our sponsor, ExpressVPN. You can get 12 months with 35% off by following the link in the description below. Um, so, Julia, uh, why don't you give us like a little uh, background of yourself first and of uh, setting up Every Doctor? Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a doctor. I qualified in 2010, and all doctors work in lots of different specialties before they specialize in anything. So, I was a junior doctor for a few years, worked in hospital medicine, did a bit of um, work in GP as well as a junior doctor. And then I specialised in psychiatry. Um, so I did some I did some years working as a psychiatry doctor. Um, I've actually paused my work as a psychiatry doctor at the moment while I'm focusing wholly on every doctor because during the pandemic, things became so busy for us um, with lots of issues within the NHS that um, the lobbying was taking over all my time. So um, I'm not actually working clinically at the moment. So um, one of the things that, that, that was uh, clear early on in the pandemic actually was the, the lack of um, per, uh, personal protection equipment for, for NHS staff. Uh, now, given that they are on the front line, they're the people who should probably be getting it before uh, anyone else. Uh, and I, I noticed that there were some reports of like, gag orders being placed on, on nurses and doctors to kind of not speak out about this. Um, did you see any instances of that or were you aware of that going on at all? Yes, there was quite a lot of that going on. And um, it's it's always quite difficult for healthcare workers to speak up about what goes on in their workplaces. Um, a lot of hospitals, for example, have their own press department and they encourage members of staff to go to the press department and discuss stuff before it gets sort of spoken about in the media. The problem with that is that occasionally something will be going on in a workplace that a member of staff might feel that the public need to know about and the press department might not want that information to get out because it might suggest that there's um problems with capacity or bed blocking and things that might raise public alarm and so there's a bit of tension there all the time but it definitely got worse during the pandemic and um, we saw lots of emails that were being sent out saying things like do not contact the media do not give a quote about xyz um and that was a real problem because i think the media were really struggling to get access to healthcare places at that point uh, certainly during the first wave, but actually during the wave that we've just seen, um, 
some of the communications got centralised. So people were even having to seek permission from NHS England, the centralised body, if they wanted to do an interview and that kind of thing. And all that happens is it means everyone becomes less informed about what's really going on. Um, and I know that you're really interested in this, Josh, but it, it leads to kind of rumours about what's what's happening. People get really worried. They're not getting answers. Mm. And the public really need to understand that sort of thing. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Like, like actually finding out what's happening is, is the 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 best response to 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 people's sort of speculation on what's happening. Uh, now, one of one of the issues that that I wanted to chat to you about, and the the reason I actually found every doctor in the first place was um, the the privatization of the NHS. And I have seen sort of over the past five years, um, my mum, who's a nurse, talk more and more about it, and I've watched the conversation go like. Someone will present and say, hey, look, we need to be concerned about the NHS being privatized. And then um, the the response quite often is, oh, don't be stupid. The NHS isn't being privatized. And and I'm never quite sure, like, what response to give to that. Like, how, how do you get that point across? And, and why is it something we should be concerned about? Yeah, it. I mean, it is really confusing because there's different parts of the NHS and there's lots of contracts that go on within the NHS anyway like for example you know a piece of equipment that gets bought from a private provider or blood tests or whatever else which obviously not all of those things are NHS branded and they are they're bought from outside the NHS and that's been the the way for a long time but um, increasingly in recent years private contracts have been handed out to private providers like Virgin Healthcare and others Um, and it's happening um in increasingly really um we've we've just found out that a large american insurance company have bought the contracts to a number of gp surgeries particularly in london and that's causing a lot of alarm i think because um it's a confusing thing to understand some people see gps as private providers anyway but gps um run a service which is um, they have one employer. The employer is the NHS. The NHS is the only thing buying their services. It's a, it's not kind of a free market, and the GPs aren't working in a kind of free marketplace. Whereas if you've got people coming in, like insurance companies, who are potentially looking to skim a profit off the top of public healthcare, we get more concerned that patient care could suffer as a result. Mm. I mean, the 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 insurance market being brought in is something that that I have to. Uh, like the the realization that that costs money is something that I don't think many people realize is like as soon as you bring in like an insurance market like someone has to pay for all of that like all the salaries of anyone in the insurance company all of the actuaries who work for them all the underwriters um like the processing of all the data that has to go back and forth and and it it like it can add up to like a seriously increased cost of of healthcare like I spoke to Dr David Belk who uh, who wrote a book called The True Cost of American Healthcare. And the the way in which the insurance companies just sort of not only like swindled the system, but end up making astronomical profits is, is terrifying when someone's health is involved. Yeah. And I mean, we're not there yet, but I think for people like yourself, Josh, who are reading those types of books and seeing what happens in the States, it is quite terrifying thinking, is this the route that we could be going down? Mm. And why are American insurance companies interested in investing in GP surgeries over here? And it's not to say that we're at that point yet, but I think there's a lot of people starting to get alarmed about it. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I'm definitely one of them. I, I, 
yeah, I can't, I can't express enough why, why that's a bad idea. Um, but another one of the issues that, that people have have kind of raised as as a problem is that the fact that the NHS is is constantly accused of being like chronically underfunded. Like, is that is that a reality um, from from your guys' perspective? Is that is that actually the case? So that and that again, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to try and explain because the NHS becomes more and more expensive year on year. Um, we've got an aging population, and also medicine, as it becomes more advanced, as the treatments become more complex, it becomes a more expensive thing to run. And so, actually, in order to kind of keep up with the baseline of what it costs to run the NHS, you're having to put in more and more money each year to keep things at the same level of kind of service provision. Now. Um, Things have been underfunded and services were cut a great deal during the kind of austerity years 2010 to 2020. About £40 billion worth of funding was taken out of patient services. A lot of roles were removed and staff roles, which were really essential for running a really excellent service for patients. And patients are kind of getting a worse deal as a result of that. Um, from my own perspective as a psychiatry doctor, we lost a lot of the kind of allied health professionals who would have helped the doctors and nurses get the jobs done well. So we lost a lot of art therapists, psychologists, a lot of those um, really specialised roles, which, um, you know, really make the NHS special because it's not just about delivering uh, kind of acute medical care. The NHS is about creating a really healthy lifestyle for people. And we've lost a lot of that investment over the recent years. Mm. Why do you think it is that, that, that those programs have been cut? Like, why, why were those programs chosen? Well, I think after the credit crunch happened, um, those in government were trying to make very difficult decisions about what they thought within society could be cut from the public budgets. And the NHS is a hugely expensive thing to resource. I mean, from my perspective, clearly as a doctor and someone who's made this my career, I think the NHS is a priority and I think it should have, um, continue to be funded in a way that was going to keep patients safe. Um, I think if you've got a different outlook on this and you feel that people should fund some of their healthcare themselves or you're trying to move the country towards a model where people are partly paying for their own healthcare, maybe public health system becomes um, less sort of overarching, then maybe you've got a different outlook on all of this. Um, speaking cynically, I think a lot of NHS campaigners feel that the NHS is being underfunded so that services fail and patient confidence in the service drops and then it can be privatised and replaced with something different, um, which is a bit of a depressing way of thinking about it all. But when you when you read those books, Josh, <laughs> that is the sort of feeling that you get when you're reading people who've really studied this and are looking at it over the long term. It does feel like where we're going. Mm. I mean, it's, it's it's something I actually like to, to to slightly sidetrack and plug my book. It's something I actually like talked about in in my book that I was concerned that um, post Brexit, uh, whatever sort of economic damage was done would be used as an excuse to either further underfund or ultimately privatize um, more and more services. And I think COVID is, is probably going to make that that situation even worse but um one of the things we we, we chatted about sort of briefly la um yesterday when we spoke was that the to me it seems like the the the, the cuts and the, the 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 lack of funding over the past sort of five to ten years has put us in a position where we were incapable of handling any kind of surge of of patients that that like like has happened at, at 
and different times over the past year. Um, like, to what extent do you think that underfunding has been, has caused the strains that have been seen on the NHS this year? And and how how much worse has that been, if at all, compared to like any of the the last sort of ten years of of winter crises? Because like one of the things that people um, like Peter Hitchens kept pointing out is that. We, we've seen winter crises every year and people have been screaming about our, our, you know, people being treated in, in corridors and, you know, ambulances lining up outside hospitals for years. And it's been, it's been like in the hearts of people for years and, and sort of never touched. And, and yet this year it seems to have become, well, you know, possibly for the better, but a much bigger issue. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It has, um, I think there's been efforts to try and streamline the service at various time points, which have cut areas of the service, cut staff numbers, have reduced bed numbers and that sort of thing. And what happens is it means that the the NHS doesn't really have anywhere to go when things become busier because they're always running at full capacity. So if things suddenly, if you suddenly get more patients becoming sick, there's nowhere to put people. There's no, there's not enough staff to look after them safely. And it puts us into these dangerous situations every single winter, as you know. And during COVID, um, you're right, the cost actually has been enormous as well because we weren't prepared for a pandemic. So not only were we not prepared with bed numbers and things like that, but we didn't have enough PPE. And the amount of money that we've had to hand out as a, as a country to buy PPE at inflated prices when you know we're desperate for it at the last minute mm. it's unbelievable the amount of money that's been wasted and we waste a lot of money in staff costs as well because you've probably seen stuff in the papers about locum rates what happens is we're understaffed we don't employ enough full-time members of staff all the time and then suddenly it's a winter crisis we're desperate for staff and um, NHS trusts are forced to fork out these massive hourly rates for staff because they can't cope in any other way Mm. Um, so it's just it's not very sensible long-term planning to be honest yeah I, I actually I went to ooh, it's got to be three or four years ago now I went to a consultation in the Antrim area hospital near Belfast about um, sort of the the use of funding the lack of staff the the lack of nurses and I tried to make this point to the people who were who were doing the consultation because they said you know we're constantly having to bolster our our staff numbers with uh you know, agency nurses, because there's not enough nurses. And I was like, hang on. So you're saying that you have enough nurses from the agency to fill the staff numbers. Does that not suggest that it's not a lack of nurses? It's a, a lack of either pay, respect, flexibility, whatever, whatever, whatever reason that the nurses are choosing to not work for the NHS directly and going to the agency. Like surely, surely that suggests that there is enough nurses you, that you just don't have them on the books yourselves. And the, the, the people who were, who were doing the consultation were like, yes, but there's not enough nurses, so we have to go to the agency. It seems to be this like loop where, where we, have, we don't want to confront the fact that we're not treating the staff in a way that they, makes them want to work for the NHS. And yet at the same time, we're complaining that they don't want to work for the NHS. Like, is that a fair assessment of what's going on? Yeah, it kind of is like that. I mean, you do get some places where... The, the nurses who are working on a ward are also the same agency nurses and they kind of top up their normal earnings with working loads of extra hours. And when you ask them about it, quite a lot of nurses and doctors wouldn't really choose to do that. They're working an, like an extra 20 hours a week or something because the, the staff are needed and so they do all the overtime. But 
it's still costly. And you're right, there's a lot of people who don't want to commit to a permanent job because they don't feel that they're valued and, and they maybe earn a tiny bit more if they do these agency hours. I mean, it's quite stressful doing agency work as well because you kind of come into a situation where you maybe don't know your colleagues so well and you don't know the patients and you just come in for a single shift or something. And so it's a stressful environment to work in often. It's, it's different. Um, but no, I, com- I think you're completely right. And, um, you know, and it's getting worse and worse. Certainly in medicine, we're struggling to get doctors into specialty training because when you come out of medical school, you do a couple of years working in various different specialties to find out what you want to specialise in. And then traditionally, about 75 or 80% of those people would then go onto a training programme and eventually come out the other end as a consultant or a GP. But increasingly, people don't want to do that. They'd much prefer to locum um, and move around the country a bit and maybe even move abroad because doing one of those training programmes is really, really stressful and you have to work loads of hours per week and all these exams and stuff and you know, we're just finding that people coming up through the system just don't feel very supported in their jobs at the moment. And so they just don't want to commit to things. And that's really bad for the NHS in the long term because we just won't end up with the consultants and GPs that we need. Mm. Why do you think it is that people don't feel supported? Like you use that term specifically. Yeah, oh, it's, a, it's a mixture of reasons. It's really stressful working in the NHS. And um, because we're missing about 100,000 staff, you often turn up to work and you maybe don't have as many colleagues around you as you should do. So there's often what we call rotor gaps. So let's say there was supposed to be three doctors covering a team at night. There'll be two or sometimes even one. And all of those things mean that you're making decisions in a more stressful way with more kind of time pressure on you. And you don't really have anyone else to check things over with you. So there's that kind of thing that feels really, really stressful. And also because everyone's feeling stressed, there's less time in the system to kind of sit down with senior colleagues and get advice or support or learn stuff. And so people are kind of going through these training pathways with probably a bit less um, kind of advice or direction from seniors than they used to. And that can feel really stressful as a doctor. I mean, certainly for all healthcare colleagues, I think, but I can only speak from medics really. Um, You know, if you did something that harmed a patient by mistake, that's your responsibility. And yet, if there's less and less staff around, then you're more and more likely to make a mistake because you're having to take on more and more responsibility. So it's this sort of spiral of stress that gets created for people. Um, And it means that people just don't want to, they just don't want to fully engage in it. They'd prefer to kind of have a bit of their life and then work a couple of shifts a week. Um, So it's not good. (laughs) No. So so why, why, in your opinion, at least anyway, are we like not, doing anything about this i mean it seems seems like uh, we should probably be like hopefully instead of um stressing all our our staff that we have and um bringing in well for i mean like one of one of the big debates during during brexit was that like we were there was two we were bringing in too many immigrants into britain or we were lying in too many and yet a lot of a lot of the immigration is based on like our need especially in the nhs for for nurses and doctors um, my mom had just mentioned she's got a colleague from from india who's uh, in her 60s who's come over here on like a three-year visa which is like fair play to her for coming over to to like staff um and, and work and leave her com- like her home country for three years or you know maybe longer depending on if she likes it or not but that seems that seems crazy when we could like be training people in this it like it, you know we could be training people in britain to to do it and <laughs> why why are we not essentially in in your yeah. mind 
I think it's short-term political decision-making that causes all of this. And you're absolutely right. We, over a quarter of the medical workforce now are doctors on visas. And they've come, abroad, come, come over from lots of different countries, but primarily places like um, Pakistan and some countries in Africa, India, Malaysia. And a lot of um, these doctors and also nurses are coming from healthcare systems where actually there's, there's poor health provision. And we're going over and actively recruiting staff from countries that can probably ill afford to lose their own healthcare workers, mm. bringing them over to England or other parts of the UK. And actually treating these members of staff really badly. They have to pay really high visa fees and lots of other associated fees as well. Um, they're often not given an awful lot of support in getting used to the UK healthcare system. They're more likely to be referred to the GMC, which is a whole other kind of conversation. Um, and meanwhile, like you say, we're not really supporting people to get involved in, in training within the UK. I mean, they took away the student nurse bursaries a few years ago which is a huge thing. And I know that in recent months, actually, lots of people have been applying to do nursing um, at university. Oh, really? Um, that's, that's really... Yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's quite It's nice. really surprising. Yeah. I, I was so surprised. I, like, cynically, I think probably it's because a lot of people have lost jobs during the pandemic and probably are thinking, this will be a job for life for me. This will be something, you know, that's, that's skilled. And that that's true. But I do think that nurses in particular really need their bursaries provided because you'll know this from your mum. When, when nurses are at nursing school, it's not like a normal uni course where they're just going in for lectures. They go and do shifts on the wards and they're working really hard. Mm. Um, they can't take on another job in their spare time to fund their training or whatever. So if you don't have a bursary, a lot of people can't afford to go and study nursing. Mm, yeah that's a real problem I, like i know from a couple of friends of mine were just like furious when the bursary got removed um they couldn't believe it because and the amount they work and they like they, yeah. they'd be telling me they'd be on like full-time shifts um yeah. and then and then have to like go home and like write essays and i was like what on earth is wrong with and they weren't even getting yeah. paid barely at all for the shifts they were doing and it's, it seems like it feels like sometimes that we're just like deliberately making it awful to try and learn to be a nurse when 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 any time my my like any time anyone from like that older generation speaks about their training to me they 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 always speak about it as this really fun positive time where they learn a lot they mm -hmm. they got they got to like you know learn these new skills they got to like help people and and they they really enjoyed their work and and one of the bonuses of it was was they were getting paid to do that work while yeah. they were training and it seems like we've just like gone the complete opposite tact now yeah it, that's how it feels like for me as well it's really it's really sad and and also i think people who are training during covid as well have had a really awful time you know some of the nurses have been expected to really step up and meanwhile not being paid you know it's like unbelievable really mm. and then they want they, they, they're, they're talking about the pay rise now so they've they've they've, they've penciled in like one percent which feels yeah. like an insult it's like these the, these people have, have have really like worked hard on a on an overstretched you know service for for the best part of a year and and they're getting basically no thanks except some claps they <laughs> how does it feel as like someone who's working in or with and in the health service to do you actually feel like the government appreciates what you you guys have been doing? Well, well, not we know I've not been working frontline, but for the people that I represent, it's it's awful, really. I mean, doctors aren't as as badly paid as nurses, obviously, and so I think the way a lot of doctors are thinking about it is 
um, they've taken a massive real terms pay cut over the last few years, which has affected them individually, but they're much more angry on the behalf of nurses and other allied healthcare workers because nurses, um, sort of someone who's on what's called a top band five level, which is a kind of senior nurse, but it's not like a matron. They've taken a 20% real terms pay cut since 2010. And that's a highly skilled individual and they're not paid very much anyway. They they weren't paid very much in 2010. And um, some of the stories that we've heard from allied health professionals, like um, other members of staff within the hospital, ICU nurses and others, it's been really horrifying. I mean, people having to go to food banks and not being able to make ends meet. And meanwhile, they're going to work and enduring this incredibly stressful experience over like you say like a a whole year it's such an insult to to all of their efforts during covid i think do you think the government will move on this have you seen any any suggestion that they might like bump the pay increase or like match match scotland like i've heard i've heard people hopeful here in northern ireland at least that the rsr uh, like local assembly will match the scottish four percent pay rise have you heard anything about england Mm, there's kind of rumours going around and, and none of them have been confirmed. I think what we suspect is that that they underplayed it by saying that they were going to give 1%, always knowing that they were actually going to go for 2% or something like that. But um, I doubt they would willingly go to 4 <laughs> But we'll see what happens because, as you've probably seen, the RCN and other nurses groups have come out saying they're going to strike. And if they followed through with that, that would put an awful lot of pressure on the government. And so I think the next few weeks will be quite telling how they start responding. I mean, doctors, um, I mean, we're, we're backing the nurses, basically. We're going to try and support everything they're doing. And if they choose to strike, I would be really supportive of that. I think a lot of our colleagues would be as well. Because um, I just don't think we're going to have an NHS to speak of in the future if we just continue to treat nurses and other colleagues like this. How hard is it, do you find, um, like speaking to both nurses and doctors, how, how reluctant are they to go out on strike when the patients are, are often the people who, who end up suffering as a result of that? Like, it's, they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place sometimes with this. Yeah, they are. Um, in fact, back in 2015, 2016, when we had the junior doctor strikes, it was, oh, it, it was a really, really difficult decision for people. And the only reason some junior doctors decided to do it in the end is that the nurses stepped up massively and supported us and the senior doctors weren't going to go on strike. And so we knew that the patients actually would be safe without junior doctors being present. If all the nurses went off on strike, I think we would learn an awful lot about how much we rely on nurses because <laughs> it would be a very big, powerful workforce. But I think um, if it was to happen, I think other allied health professionals and medics would come together and ensure that there were more staff around so patients were safe. It, you know, because I don't think any nurse could live with themselves being on strike if they thought the patients were in danger. Um, Having said that, the horrible thing about it is the reason the industrial action would be effective is to put government under pressure because that would be what they would be concerned about. So Mm. I would hope it doesn't come to that. I think probably everyone hopes that. Mm. Yeah, hopefully not. I mean... Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, like I said, it's it's a really difficult place for for any staff to be in where their 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 choices that you know people's health or or their like yeah the health of their job and 
a pay packet and ability to provide for themselves is a is a really awful position to be in. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to make that choice anyway. Uh, but uh, so uh, to to move on to some of the 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 you know more controversial stuff that we wanted to talk about. Um, like yesterday when we spoke, you mentioned that you feel that a lot of um, sort of very pro-freedom libertarian types uh, have sort of complained about rights and freedom being surrendered and without considering like the experts that they're questioning. And and I thought a lot about that. Like I really did. Um, and I was just trying to think, I was like, about who I should go to for to, to listen to and, and trust on this issue. And I was thinking about why I have lost trust in, in certain individuals, um, some of the people on Sage and whatnot, that I, I just don't know who to listen to anymore. I just, like, I want to, I want to just give like a couple of examples as to why I and people I've spoken to have, have kind of like are, are reluctant to listen to some of what people are saying, just so I can uh, get, um, yeah, like express my point better. So like the, like last year, um, a couple of things that the World Health Organization said at one time or another to retract or not retract, where they said that lockdowns were not a long-term option because of the other side effects of them. They said that at one point, um, asymptomatic spread was statistically negligible and outdoor spread as well. And the British Medical Journal said that. But then another study, they didn't. Um, they said that vaccine passports were not a good idea. And then in terms of like who we should listen to, there's been a lot of, um, you know, promotion of people saying, OK, we need to wear masks and lock down um, and I'll, I'll listen to that. And then you hear people like Dr. Sinatra Gupta from um, I think it's Cambridge University and a lot of people who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, as much as that was kind of corrupted by random people just signing it, like there were still like legitimate doctors signing it um, who were sort of opposed to the ideas. And I, I, I guess I'm kind of lost in this mess of who to listen to. Like, how, how would you suggest that someone tries to cut through that and figure out like where, yeah, where, where, where we should place our trust? It is really, really difficult, like you say. And um, I think when you've got a situation like this where the information is moving really quickly, not everyone agrees, and potentially lives are at risk it's really tough and I was thinking about it a lot as well Josh and I think actually in my role as a medical professional it's probably easier for me to like sift through all this sort of thing and then maybe ask the questions in my head about like well what's this person's background and what university are they associated with and who's funding them and all the rest of it and to a lot of people they maybe aren't used to reading medical journals and it's a different situation so for some of the people who are getting really cross on Twitter about masks for example that, you know, no one's going to be like, I don't believe that most people are genuinely going to be bad actors here. I think people are probably trying to absorb information and try and take the information they feel to be the most believable that they're absorbing. Mm. Um, I think the thing that's really hard about this crisis is that it's political and it's been politicized. And when you've got people making political decisions um, and medics are, or scientists are kind of inputting information into that, but they're doing so in an advisory role, not in a kind of executive role. Sometimes even the stuff that doctors and scientists have been suggesting to the government hasn't been listened to. And so, you know, we look to our leading medical figures like Chris Whitty, for example, or Professor Van Tam, who I, re I respect both greatly. Um, I don't necessarily think the government always listened to them. And so 
it's very difficult, you know, when you're listening to the daily briefings and stuff, thinking like, well, is this truth? Mm. Or is this something that they have inputted to? Or is this something that the government have put out without listening to doctors? It's really, really hard to figure it out, isn't it? And mm. um, I suppose... I don't think doctors always get it right and don't think scientists ever get it right because it, we're, we are humans as well and we're learning. Mm. But what I found really interesting is that people have become trusted voices who I've never heard of before. And I find that really interesting, particularly on Twitter. Mm. Um, and I think there's certain leading figures who I would now turn to as kind of sources of fact, whose names I didn't even know before the pandemic. Um, so from a personal perspective, I try to listen to public health experts who've got a lot of experience thinking about diseases that spread around. I try to listen to epidemiologists and virologists who work in the public sector because they don't have any other reason. They don't have any reason to to be telling you anything that isn't based in fact. I think what becomes difficult is if you start listening to people who are being funded by or sort of supported by any other source. So I get worried about doctors or experts who, who you can tell are being supported in doing something. So the Great Barrington Declaration is the absolute epitome of this, isn't it? There was some eminent scientists and doctors putting forth a view, and yet it was all a bit murky about who's funding this and what's the aim of this project. Mm. And I found I had an awful lot of questions about that. Yeah, so uh, you you mentioned that you had like some people that you would would have turned to that that you haven't uh, that you didn't know before the pandemic. Like, do you want to give some examples there? I'm keen to look. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Professor Trisha Greenhall at Oxford, who's a public health professor, she's been doing some amazing work. Um, Deepti Gurdasani, who's an epidemiology, she's a lecturer actually. She puts together really great graphics. Um, Gabriel Scally as well um, and they regularly put out um, threads on Twitter for example which I find are really informative there's also the Indie Sage group which I don't know if you've been following but um, that's a group which mirrors what Sage are doing but I suppose um, they're doing it independently um, and so there's the sense that the politics from the government aren't infiltrating the messaging Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the, yeah. The issue being that like we, uh, as you, as you said, like people are humans and I honestly think part, part of the reason that everyone's gone so crazy about it is because um, like we lack, there was a great quote from, um, from Jordan Peterson, actually, they were talking about like our retreat into digital communities and how it leads to um, acute paranoia because of the abilities of, sorry, the ability of an online community to hyper-select its own members. Um, so like, as a psychiatrist, do, do you think that that's got like any merit that we've all become like a little sort of locked in our own bubbles because of that? And they're unwilling to kind of consider different different views of things? Because like this is, this is honestly one thing I've, I've become really concerned about in the last few months is that say we have like a public inquiry, which I 100% think we should have um, post-COVID. And whatever the outcome whether it shows that um, perhaps the lockdown should have been more targeted at elderly people or perhaps that government should have locked down sooner, like which whatever the outcome is in, in hindsight, that whatever happens that there's minimum 30 to 40% of the population that will never accept that they were wrong on this. 
Um, is that is that like something like as as yeah from from a psychiatric point of view is that something that you'd consider a, a, a problem or potentially a problem um I don't know if I'd consider it from my sort of from my experiences working in psychiatry and I haven't worked in psychiatry for a year now but I've been doing an awful lot of work online and so um I you know like yourself Josh I've probably been watching the way people behave I do think that we're becoming more entrenched in the views that we have and the things that we see online tend to reinforce the beliefs that we already have and so unless you're someone who actively goes out trying to create a you know for example a twitter profile where you're hearing from both sides of different arguments and you do that consciously which some people do um we we try to surround ourselves with things that make us feel comfortable or like we're in the right as you say and when you get situations of crisis like this where people's lives are being lost and livelihoods are being lost as well, I think that probably reinforces those feelings even further that there's a sort of us versus them mentality about things. Um, and I don't think it's, it's just about COVID, is it? Like you say, Brexit has created a country divided, hasn't it? For, for several years, we're quite used to feeling that way now. Um, like there's two camps and which camp are you going to sit on? Um, rather than kind of keeping an open mind. So it's worrying, definitely. And I think politics is seeing this trend generally, isn't it? And it's getting worse on social media. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of my book is that social media is making those divisions worse. Um, so I, I, I enjoy being right, but not at the ex- expense of our, our country. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess I guess like my 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 takeaway would be to try everyone to try and you know consider that that you, you could be wrong. Um, that's like my 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 whole thing, and I find that it's fun trying to watch people pin down where I stand on issues because I talk to people from so many different points of view and agree with them on a lot of things. So it's always funny watching people try and pin down where I'm at if they like look at the people I follow on Twitter because it's you know, everyone from like pure conspiracy theorists to like the the most left wing of woke people. And they they can't like, they can't pin down where I'm at, which is fun. Um, but uh, so so if you had to like give some, some takeaway for people at the moment in terms of, like, you know, either trying to remain positive or, you know, wanting to show support for doctors or like what, what would be the message that every doctor is trying to trying to pump out at the minute? Well, I think we're trying to spread awareness at the moment about what's going on in the NHS. We had a big meeting about this yesterday, actually, about NHS prioritisation in particular, of how we all need to kind of come together and look at what's happened so far in a kind of blameless way, because I don't think any of these problems in the NHS is down to one villain who's kind of swept in and <laughs> ruined everything. Mm. It's happened over a really large a really long time period lots of decisions have been made some of which have been made for sensible reasons and haven't worked out brilliantly there's been a lot of change you know there's, there's all kinds of reasons why the NHS has found itself in the position it's currently in but I think what we need to do now is to look at the situation we're in look at the timeline of events that have led us to this point and then have a really honest conversation with lots of different viewpoints from different political parties about what do we actually want from the future of the NHS and and therefore put put a plan in place to allow that to happen. And if the Conservative government do want to privatise the NHS, and that is their aim, then I would certainly appreciate it if we all knew that and we, we knew what they were going for so that um, so that everybody could lose this sort of, uh, this sense that we have to save the NHS. And, and 
and sound a little bit conspiracy theorist about the whole thing. Um, you know, we spoke about this yesterday, but quite a lot of things that don't even have an NHS logo on them, which aren't publicly owned, they're privately owned. And all of those things cause a lot of confusion for people. Um, like NHS, NHS test and trace, you know, run by Circo. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think there needs to be a lot more honesty about what we want from our public healthcare system. And I think actually then the public will be able to offer a view either way, because at the moment, I think people just don't really understand. They get confused. And to a lot of people, if they can still go to a GP when they need to go to a GP, as far as that, you know, as far as they're concerned, that means the NHS exists and that's the end of the story. And the worry, I suppose, is that one day that service won't be there anymore. And we'll have known it's happening for years and years, but we won't have taken action to, to change things. So, yeah. So, sorry, that was a bit of a ramble. We're trying to spread awareness about what's really going on. Well, people uh, go check out every doctor, um, believe that the NHS is being very slowly privatised and uh, go, you know, do something about it if that's concerning to you. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Julia, it's been it's been great. So um, I'll put links for all the stuff we talked about in the description below. And um, is there anything you want to plug just quickly before you go? Think so just thank you so much for having me josh it's been great speak no soon speak soon thank you thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed the show please subscribe follow me on twitter or sign up to our mailing list thanks a lot to our sponsor express vpn the number one most trusted vpn get lightning fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries keep your browsing privacy safe with express vpn and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. That's Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.